The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, good evening. It's a tremendous privilege to uh, bring the God of word, word of God with you this evening. Um, the passage I've chosen is out of the book of Hebrews. It's something I've entitled The Body of Christ, the Perfect or Better Sacrifice. So I'll read, pray, and then we'll jump right in. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, if you'd like to follow along. For the law, since it only has a shadow of the good things to come and not the form of those things, itself can never, by the same sacrifices which they continually offer every year, make those who approach perfect. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remainder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, You have not desired sacrifice and offering, but you have prepared a body for me. You have not taken pleasure in whole burnt offerings and for sin. Then I said, Behold, I have come, it is written in, of me in the scroll of the book, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. He said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for the sacrifice of Christ, for the birth of Christ, that he came to be like one of us, to live a life that we have failed to live, and that he took the punishment for our sins on the cross. I pray now you can help me to speak your word, that it can work in the hearers of those here, that they can see Christ as altogether lovely, as perfect, as beautiful, and that some for the first time might have their eyes open to see realities they have not seen before. Amen. So you think a Christmas message, you probably wouldn't have the phrase blood of bulls and goats in it, but... It's really important when you think about where the culture of Jesus was coming into, where they had all of these Old Testament sacrificial systems, and so they're going through all of these motions, a lot of them missing the significance of Christ coming into the world. So I thought it would be helpful if we step through this passage and we really understand the greatness of the body of Christ and the sacrifice that that provides for us for a covering for our sin. So verse 1 says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the form of those things itself, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually every year, make those perfect who approach. So one of the problems with the Old Covenant is, in terms of being able to save, it was just a shadow. So if you have dirty hands and you go to the faucet, you're not going to use the shadow of something to clean your hands. You need the real thing. In the same way, I'm not very excited by the shadow of my wife as opposed to the real thing. So 
the things they can never, those things cannot make us perfect. So even a bigger question is why does that even matter? Well, the reason that it matters is God. Our view of God, you might say, controls everything that you do in your life. Your understanding of God influences, in effect, how you live your daily life. If you think that God is just merely plan B in your life, if something goes wrong, you can grab onto him and, and then, then that's when I need God. You'll live your life that way as if God is sort of in the back garage. You only need him if you know, something goes really wrong. Or if you think God requires certain works of you to be pleasing to him, you're going to live your life in such a way where you're trying to perform those works. Or maybe you think, well, I'm God and I get to decide what's right and I'm going to do what I want. So, as many theologians have said, what you think about when you think about God may be the most important thing about you. And one of our greatest problems in our culture today is I would say we have a really little anemic view of God. We don't have the God of the Bible that is influencing our culture, and it's obvious by the way that we live and the way that we do things. And two of probably the most important uh, ideas or doctrines about God to understand is that God is good and that God is just. And you say, okay, well, what, is, what does it matter that God is good? And you think that's probably one of the, the most important things, because if God is good, he is simply not going to allow evil to go unpunished. And you say, okay, well, that sounds good. We think about all the evil in the world, and we want a God who is going to, to punish sin. But the problem is, we don't like where the line that God draws is. We want the line to be somewhere down the street where there's a bunch of scary people we don't want to associate with. But the problem with God is his his goodness, his holiness is so far beyond us, it makes everyone in this room guilty before him. And second, the justice of God, God will not let a single sin go. God will punish and cause judgment to fall on every single sin that we've done, whether it be big or whether it be small. And so... Again, he says, make those who approach perfect. So, and you might think, where, where do bad things, why, why do we do bad things? Where do they come from? And you might, you know, if you're out hiking and you take a, a scoop out of the water of the river, stream thing, well, this looks clear. You're probably not going to take a sip of it if you see that there's a dead animal upstream. Because what's happened is the animal's died and is now polluted everything downstream of that water. And that's the same of us. We have sinful hearts, and as a result, it corrupts every single thing about us. So we, we're in need of a great Savior, someone to, to take our sin from us. And so people might often say, well, you know, nobody is perfect. And you think about it, if you're on a sinking ship, you know, it's not very comforting words. Or someone saying, well, we're all going to drown. You'd be like, well, no, this, this is a problem. We need to do something about this. So verse 2 goes on to say, otherwise... They would not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had a consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So another problem with the Old Covenant being able to cleanse us is it didn't work. So let's say, going back to the cleaning your hands analogy, if you go, you wash your hands and they're, they're dirty, are you going to wash them again and wash them again? At some point you realize, this isn't working. There's still dirt on my hands. So what we need is we need something greater than the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sin. 
Because what this did, rather than take away the sin, is it brought a reminder of it every year. So the, the system would come and you'd sacrifice the lamb. And every year it's this process of reminding people that we, we, need, we need someone to save us. We, we need a savior. We, we need something greater than this because this isn't working. And what is it that is going to save us? And so the Bible talks about everybody having a knowledge of sin, right and wrong. So a question for you might be, what do you do with the sin that you have? You can look back in the book of Genesis where you have Adam and Eve, and they, they transgress the law of God, don't eat the fruit. They eat the fruit, and then immediately their eyes are opened. They became afraid, and they went and hid from God. And I believe that's true of, of all of us as well. When we sin, we get, we, we're, we're afraid. We understand what we've done, that our sin is primarily against God, and that there's a problem now with our relationship with God. And there's, there's two types of things that people like to do. They like to dress up themselves and try to present themselves to God with all the good things they do, or they'll understand that they're broken and they need a savior. It's very much true, the, the story of the Pharisee and the publican, where the Pharisee goes, he starts praying, he talks about how wonderful he is a God, how awesome, how amazing, all the good works he's done. And he says, I'm really glad I'm not like that guy over there, who pointing to a tax collector, and all he can do is not even lift his eyes to heaven and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It was that one that went home justified rather than the man who had the laundry list of good works that he had done. So if the Old Testament sacrificial system could not cleanse us, what, what could? What can? Is it going to be more animals? Is it going to be better animals? Is it going to be gold? Is it going to be gems? Is it going to be more good works? Is it going to be different things? Many people often run to their good works as if it's going to be some sort of covering enough for, for them to um, get themselves right with God. Well, let's say we, there was this bath of ink, and we thought, well, let's, let's just see if we can get the purest water that's ever been made. So all these scientists get together, they distill water, they get rid of every single impurity in the water, and they think if we add this perfectly pure water to the bath of ink, it's going to turn absolutely pure. And they said, well, no, that's, that's really dumb. That's the same thing with our sin. We can't simply get rid of all the wrong things that we've done by doing, trying to clean ourselves up. Something has to be done with our sin, and that's where Jesus comes in. Verse 5 says, and this is why I think it's a great Christmas text, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, You have not desired sacrifice and offering, but you have prepared a body for me. So Jesus came to be that perfect sacrifice that we need. He, he took on a nature just like us. He was born of a woman just like us. He came into the world just like us. And one of the, I think, the greatest things about Jesus coming to the world isn't as much that he came in you know, the manger and there's all this dirt and grime and we think, oh, how terrible. But think about it from a spiritual perspective. He came down with a bunch of sinful, rebellious people and that is more odious to God than dirt is to us. And so imagine, how would you like to go share the gospel out in a corner of the bunch of uh, drug dealers and gangbangers and stuff? It's probably something of the idea for God to come down to us as one of us. So Jesus came to die not for virtuous people who had gotten a little dirty, but sinners and rebels. It's like the judge going and hanging out with people on death row and associating with them. 
That's, that's what God has done for us. Bull, the blood of bulls and goats wouldn't do it. And I don't think we have a, a line of volunteers who'd say, oh, I would gladly sacrifice my body for that sinful person over there. Because that's something, that type of love that only God has. So we needed a, a body, a, a human body. And what sort is, we needed a sinless one. And so verse 8 says, After saying the above sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings, uh, offering for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. So we're talking about sacrifice and offerings. Why, why were those not good? It's often a phrase used in Scripture to rebuke people that they're living their lives in such a way, they're just trying to mentally or spiritually check the box. What, what is the least I need to do so that I can appease God? Is it, do I need to kill an animal? Great, I'll, I'll kill the animal. Do I need to go to church a few times a year? Great, I'll, I'll do that. Whatever I need to do to kind of pacify God and get him off my back. So that, that phrase is often used as a rebuke to people who are thinking about the externals and not the internal. See, sin is not merely just external things that we do. It's also internal, things that we think, things that we meditate on, things that we love, things that we hate. And so it's, it's not as if we can get some sort of a shot or a vaccine and then we're, we're fine, but God wants all of us, all of our body to obey him. And probably one of the, the best examples of this is in 1 Samuel 15, 22, and you guys probably know the story where Saul, he's feeling mighty proud of himself. He just, you know, kicked the butt out of the army, and he was supposed to kill all of these animals, but he says, you know, I have an even better idea. Rather than do that, I'm going to sacrifice these to the Lord. So Saul comes and says, what are you doing? He says, I have obeyed the command of the Lord. He says, then why do I hear the sound of all these animals? He says, oh, I'm going to sacrifice them to the Lord. So then Samuel rebukes him and says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. So in other words, it's not simply doing what you think God wants you to do. It's not simply doing the external thing. This will make God happy. But it's about hearing God's word and obeying and because we have fallen short of that, we need a, a body that has done that. And the only body that has done that is that of Jesus Christ. He is the only one who didn't merely check external boxes. And well, what's the least I can get away with trying to pacify God? Jesus obeyed perfectly externally as well as internally. His thought life was perfect. His motivations were perfect. He was the exemplary person in every way. And so we need a body like that to be a perfect sacrifice for us. So what does it say in verse 9? It says, Behold, I have come to do your will. And so what this is saying is Jesus, he wants to fulfill all that God has for him. So the real question, well, why, why is this important? Well, the problem, if you're like me, is I need a righteousness that's not mine. I need a goodness I need a way for God to look at me and think I'm good. And I don't have that end of myself. But Jesus has everything I need. He is, he's a human like me in his, his fleshliness, but in his divinity, he's absolutely perfect. So he's everything I need if I'm going to have any hope of being reconciled to God, if there's going to be any hope of salvation. And if you have your Bible, turn to Romans 5, because this 
passage just says it amazingly. Um, and I'll read in verse 6 and 8. 6 to 8. So verse 6 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though for a good person perhaps someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So who wants to really think about it? Die for your enemies. Who wants to die for these dregs of society? Who wants to die for all of the bad people in the world? So what it is, the power of the gospel is that Jesus came and didn't come. I'm going to find all the good people. I'm going to bring them over here, and I'm just going to go off to heaven. No, Jesus comes down, and he finds the worst people. He hangs out with the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the the outcasts of society. It is those people that Jesus goes to save. And one of my favorite verses is just, one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So do you understand the power of that? Isn't that amazing that Jesus came down to actually die for bad people? Isn't that incredible that Jesus would come to live and suffer in your place? It's enough. I mean, you think about the, the people get mad at Christians because, well, they're always just trying to say everybody's wrong. And it's no, what, what it is, it's, it's this incredible love that God demonstrates for sinful people. If you do not understand you're a sinner, you do not understand God loves you. If you understand the gravity, the heaviness, the evil of your sin, you look at God and say, God died for me. I can't believe it. This is amazing. So the more you understand of your sin, the more you can understand what Christ has done for you and the power of the gospel to save wretched people from their sins, the consequences of their sins, which is eternity in hell. So you can look at Christ, the body of Christ, and say, that can be my Savior. I need a Savior. I need someone to save me. There he is, Jesus Christ. And I say to you today, if you are without Christ, I say, go to him. Trust in him. He is a perfect Savior who can rescue you from your sins. And then he goes on in verse 10 and says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. So I'm going to read that again just because a lot of words there, but it's an incredible statement. It kind of brings everything together. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. So the sanctifying, the idea is not like we're growing in sanctification, but it's like the cleansing. This is the thing that actually cleanses you from your sin, is is Jesus, the body that the, the sin was poured out on. And he says, the offering of the body, knowing, uh, 1 Peter 1.18 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver and gold. So do you understand who this Jesus is who died for you? He's not just like a president, like if you think of all the greatest world leaders who ever existed and famous people, inventors, and all sorts of things, if you kind of were to take those and they say, okay, we'll, we'll die for you, doesn't even compare with who Jesus is and what he has done with the sacrifice of his life. 
Do you understand this? Jesus is not just some person, but he's actually God who came down, who took your sin on himself and was crushed under the wrath of God so that you can have peace with God. Do you understand how amazing that is? Isn't this incredible that we can come together and worship a God like this who has done so much for us? And we ought to just continue to sing because it's so wonderful. But you just have to understand that Jesus isn't just a figment or like a nice person in a manger, but he's actually God who came for you. It's, it's hard to get your mind around because, I mean, God to get in your head, is, it doesn't fit. So anyway, <laughs> but um, God becoming a man and entering into this world lived a perfect life where everybody else fails. Christ did not fall short in the slightest. So he then suffers in his body on the tree, as it says in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed. In the last phrase of the Hebrews, it says, once for all time. So one of the glorious things about what Jesus has done is it wasn't like you have to keep coming back again. It's once for all time. You think about other religions, you have to keep doing different things to get cleansed. For example, Roman Catholicism, you have to continue to go and receive the sacrifice of the Mass again. But this says once for all time. It's done. That means that when you are saved, that is the end. All of your sins, past, present, and future are gone. They were on the body of Christ, and they will not it won't haunt you again. God looks at you with the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so I thought of this analogy. You might think there's, there's a tribe, and let's say they, they hear the gospel, and they were an idol-worshiping uh, tribe, and they, what they end up doing is throwing all of their idols onto a boat, and they light the boat out, and they push it into the ocean, and it burns, and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean. They're not going to hear from any of those idols again. That is what Jesus has done for, with our sins. They're gone. They are erased. We have been cleansed if we are in Christ. We, we don't we think about God's righteousness is on us, not because we have done anything, but because what he has done. He has done everything. And so, I guess, what's the point? What's the application for you know, this, this Christmas season? One, there's no sin that the body of Jesus cannot pay for. Some people think their sins are beyond what Christ can, can cleanse themselves from. They, they elevate their own sins to be somehow greater than God. But when you think about who Jesus is and what he has done, there is not a sin that cannot be forgiven. If it is murder, then it can be forgiven. If it is lying, it can be forgiven. If it's disobedience to parents, it can be forgiven. The body of Christ quenches all of our sins before God. And so in that, we can have a, a great hope. And second, the greatest gift, you know, we, presents are big at Christmas time, but the greatest gift was God giving his own son. You know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So how can you ignore such a love like that? Believe on Jesus Christ and you will have eternal life. Give your life to him. Don't just simply come to church a few times a year or think you can do simple things to to follow Jesus. But as Romans 12 says, we need to give our bodies to Christ to be a living sacrifice. We follow in Jesus' footsteps. He gave his body for us, and now we give our body for him for good works. And lastly, Jesus has been made like us in every way. 
He has been pressed beyond every breaking point of sin. You think about all the temptations and struggles and trials that we all face, and there is not one of those where Jesus did, did fail. He, he passed every test. As if, you know, I, uh, Paul Walsh used an example of a weightlifter where if there's a world record lifter, he can lift, you know, 500 pounds. You or I, we might buckle out at a few hundred, but Christ with, with sin and temptation he, he never loses. We, we might lose. We have some breaking point, but Christ knows what it's like to suffer. Christ knows what it's like to hurt. Christ knows what it's like to be tempted, and he can relate to us every way. And therefore, we ought to go with him with our prayer requests and petitions, knowing he loves us and he cares for us. And lastly, if, if you're not a Christian, the call is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent, to quit trusting in yourself, quit trusting in any other thing, and to fall on the mercy of God where you can be brought back to him. And now let's pray. Father God, we're uh, thankful for, for Christ and what he has done for us, and that he has brought us back to you through his body. And Lord, we just uh, pray now for those who don't know you, that they can see the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christ, and that they can cast themselves on his mercy. Amen.